The Jerusalem Post podcast, Travel Edition, is sponsored by worldjewishtravel.org, the number one platform for planning your Jewish cultural trips. From the latest on Caribbean cruises to kosher safaris, pilgrimages to Jewish Eastern Europe and award-winning wines and international cuisine in sun-drenched Tel Aviv. Sit back and enjoy the trip with the travel edition of the Jerusalem Post podcast. Hello, David. Hello, and it's nice to see you not in my, well, I call it my studio, but really it's sort of a cellar that I lock us up in when we record on a regular basis. We're in a tourism wonderland at the moment. There is half of the world's destinations within 10 minutes walk from where we're sat. And we're in Tel Aviv. How's that happened, David? This is the IMTM, which stands for International Mediterranean Tourism Market. It is the biggest single gathering in Israel of tourism operators, whether they're travel agents, whether they are from the Israeli government, from uh, foreign destinations. And it's a real attempt to raise awareness of places around the world with the Israeli public and also with Israeli companies who are promoting tourism. The most important thing is we are sitting in the World Jewish Travel booth, right bang in the middle of this travel market. Absolutely, and for those of you who've been listening over the last few weeks, you'll know that World Jewish Travel, or WJT, are our partners, our sponsors, and we are delighted that we are dedicating this particular podcast to their work, and over the next half an hour, you're going to be meeting some of their friends, some of the companies that they work with, some of the characters here in Israel who are pushing forward travel and tourism. And within about two seconds walk, I can see a food truck, so at the end of 30 minutes lunch is served. Why don't we introduce our first guest who isn't a guest, is a friend and a partner of the podcast. Why don't we let him introduce himself? Hi, my name is uh, Jack Gottlieb and I'm the uh, founder of World Jewish Travel and I'm so happy that you guys are here and uh, I'm here to welcome you. We're really happy to be here and we're very proud to be associated with you. We're also really happy that travel and tourism is happening, that there is a tourism fair in Israel is a big thing after two years of no tourism. But the important question is, what is World Jewish Travel? World Jewish Travel is a uh, non-profit foundation that uh, decided to construct a uh, Jewish trip advisor to help people travel Jewishly all around the world. Just like TripAdvisor, you can come in and you can find guides and hotels and all kinds of things related to uh, tourism, but it's uh, more Jewish. And then today, what we're launching, it's going to be a little more Israeli. So this really is the launch. This is the first time you're going out there. Why did you decide we need, as you call it, a Jewish trip advisor? My mom is from Belarus and my father's from Ukraine. And two hotspots right now, you know, uh, those are the two spots that you really couldn't visit today. But about 10 years ago, I took uh, some roots trips to my mom's hometown and my, my father's uh, hometown in Ukraine. It took me 6 to 12 months to plan it all out. And I said, there's got to be an easy way. I wish there was a Jewish trip advisor, you know, that would have, you know, could help me. So when I came back, I started to uh, work you know, on a digital platform to help people travel. We're going to interview five people who you think are great examples of the platform. Right. What is the link? How are these people, these examples of what World Jewish Travel is trying to do? What we decided to do is have items in our platform that tell a story. 
we're always trying to find the little story that tells the bigger story. And the tour guides and the hotels and the tour operators that you're going to find in my website, they're not the national chains. They're the local, authentic people that uh, can help you discover you know, that story. And in our situation, it's the Jewish story outside of Israel and inside of Israel, it's going to be the Israeli story. You're very much world Jewish travel, right. but you're also talking here about the Israeli story. Right. Do you see those two things as being separate? Are they the same? How do you blend them? Outside of Israel, when you're talking about the Jewish story, when you're going into any city, the Jewish story is what happened before the Holocaust, what happened during the Holocaust, what happened after the Holocaust. And it's really trying to find those iconic places, whether it's a hotel or uh, sites or whatever, that tells that the story. In Israel, it's much more complex because it's not just the Jewish story, it's the Christian story, it's the Muslim story. And also, there's a, a bit much bigger complexity because we have 80 ethnicities. That really helps in terms of culinary. We have 80 different kinds of restaurants, and you can get absolutely the best kinds of restaurants. You can find those restaurants on our website. Um, and we'll discuss restaurants a bit later in the podcast. Because all you guys think about is food. I know you guys. Yeah, look, looking at my physique, it gives it away somewhat. <laughs> Where can people find information about World Jewish Travel? Where can people find the guide? Just go on to worldjewishtravel.org. You type in a city or if you can type in Israel, and all the uh, cities that are in our platform, if it's within a city, all of the right kind of hotels, your boutique hotels like Norman, if it's, uh, uh, if you type in restaurants, you'll find ethnic restaurants, Jewish and, and uh, non-Jewish sometimes. All you have to do is just go into worldjewishtravel.org and you can find all those things that you're looking for if you want a local, authentic experience. Jack Gottlieb from World Jewish Travel, thank you very much indeed for being our sponsor, but more importantly for the vision that you have and what you're doing to help people travel Jewishly and get in touch with their culture and heritage. I'm, I'm so glad that you guys are here. Now let's eat. Ever wish there was a Jewish trip advisor? Visit worldjewishtravel.org for a one-stop shop to plan your Jewish cultural vacation at destinations around the world. Find local tours and guides, discover authentic restaurants and boutique hotels, all with a Jewish story to tell. Don't miss events with our unique cultural calendar, or simply absorb a city's Jewish story with our blogs and travel ebooks. Start your journey at worldjewishtravel.org. And as Jack was saying, it's now World Jewish Travel's launch, or real big push, on its Israel angle. And what better way for us to get involved with all of that than by talking about food? Oh, good. I'm starving. (laughs) So in that case, I'm sure you will be delighted and proud to introduce our first guest, who was meant to be with us, but for reasons beyond our control, is joining us on the line. Gil Hovav is a very well-known television presenter and restaurant critic in Israel. And not only that... Gil has had the honor of teaching me once how to make hummus. Let's hear all about him. I'm Israeli. I live in, well, born in Jerusalem, but live in Tel Aviv like everybody else. I've been working as a restaurant critic for the past 35 years. I've been doing television and radio and newspapers, and I published quite a few books, uh, more than 10 cookbooks, 
three or four collections of short stories and some more. But uh, I guess I'm here today because of my interest in Israeli food. I've been lucky enough to not so much meet you, but go to a, a talk you were giving in England about your ancestor. You have a very famous ancestor. Do you want to tell the listener who that is? Um, <laughs> My great-grandfather is Eliezer ben Yehuda, who sort of revived Hebrew almost single-handedly about, let's say, 140 years ago. Hebrew, as you may know, was, if not dead, dormant for 2,000 years. And now it's the mother tongue of whoever is Jewish and born in Israel. And uh, this miracle happened because of him. And I'm very proud of him. You worked with World Jewish Travel on its first ebook, The Top 100 Ethnic Restaurants in Israel. But what does ethnic mean for you? Israel, let's say since the 80s, I would assume, is very innovative when it comes to food. Food in Israel is wonderful. Everybody's talking about Israeli food, about Eastern Mediterranean food, about the fact that it's so surprising. It's, it's a mix of so many ethnicities. But I tend to like or respect at least the old style too, because I think that in many cases when tourists come to Israel, they look for the flashy restaurants, the new restaurants, and, and rightly so. These are the famous places. This is where everybody goes to. This is where you see people, etc. But if you pay attention to the little places that maybe were left behind a bit and are frequented by Israelis, of course, every day, you find treasures and you find tradition and you find truth. So ethnic for me is something that kept its authentic jive, that still feels like the food that a grandmother cooked. And I love it. Top of the list, and only partly because I, I've actually been in a session and made hummus with you. So you taught you taught me how <laughs> to make Mark, hummus. Mark, you're just a groupie here. He's going to think you're a stalker if you say this again. You're, you're going to start to get worried that I. I, I I'm, I'll I'm, send you the check later. You, you know, <laughs> I'm paying for this, but that's okay. <laughs> but but, but I, I made hummus under your tutelage in Birmingham. What's the secret to good hummus? And where's the best restaurant or the best place in Israel to get the best hummus? You would get very different answers to these two questions. I would say that I think that the secret to, to good hummus is to start from scratch. You start from dry chickpeas, you soak them overnight, you cook them, you reserve the cooking liquid and you make the hummus with it. And the shortcuts using frozen chickpeas or canned chickpeas are very accessible, but, but they're not good. So I would say that, that a good hummus never made the refrigerator. It's made and it's served immediately, still lukewarm, and that's what makes it so authentic and good. About the best place for hummus, you know, this is a very sensitive question in Israel. Israelis identify themselves by their hummus joint, Again, as I said, I come from Jerusalem, although I live in Tel Aviv. Jerusalemites are sure that Tel Avivians have no right to even speak about hummus. <laughs> uh, because what do they know? You know, they sit in cafes, they don't do nothing all day long. It's, it's not a city, Tel Aviv. No prophets in Tel Aviv. But having said that, I would stay you know, loyal to Jerusalem. 
my favorite hummus joint is in Jerusalem. It's called Akramawi. It's an Arab place across the street from Damascus Gate. They serve amazing hummus. It's light green. It's very different. Usually hummus is beige, but uh, hummus is ugly food. But their hummus is light green because they grind parsley into it and have green peppers. It's really to die for. And like a good hummus place, they serve it only until they're done with, with the batch that they made. So you may come at even 11.30 and they will be already out of hummus because for Arabs, hummus is breakfast food. So if you do want to go to Akramawi in Jerusalem across the street from the Damascus Gate, make sure to get there in the morning, let's say 10, 10.30, and then you're good. Will Jewish Travel's ebook, The Top 100 Ethnic Restaurants in Israel, helpfully labels each restaurant with the origin of the food and so on. But do you have your own favorite ethnic food type? I think the best cuisine in the world is Persian cuisine. And unfortunately, I have not even one drop of Persian blood in my veins. And you know, I'm Yemenite, I'm Lithuanian. I'm North African, I, you name it. But unfortunately, I'm not Persian and I love Persian food because it's so smart and elegant and rich and, and fresh. And it's the food of an empire. You have mountain food and you have valley food and you have ocean food and you have river food and you have desert food. It's to die for. I, I really admire Persian cuisine. Possibly know the answer to this already. But if I gave you the choice of going out this evening and going to a family restaurant serving Kube or going to a Michelin-starred restaurant and going through the tasting menu, what would you choose? First of all, I do not do tasting menus. I really dislike it. I did two seasons of a television series called Captain Cook. I traveled the world through three Michelin-starred restaurants all over the world. Japan, the States, France, of course, you name it, Mexico. It's great food and it's wonderful restaurants and amazing establishments. But when it comes to tasting menus, it's just too tiring. I'm an aging Yemenite person, you know, I'm 60 years old. We don't have time for tasting menus. And being the blunt Israelis that we are, you know, once I even grabbed the waiter by his collar and I told him, once more you get near my table, I'm going to show you what it is. So he respected it and withdrew from the table. I don't like, you know, 11 course dinners. And anyway, I would have opted for the first option of a family restaurant. I love sophisticated food and I love good restaurants and I go to good restaurants all the time as a restaurant critic and also because I love it. But when you come to the core of things, food is all about love. Food is about sharing whatever you, you're proud of, your memories, the thing that, things that your grandmother taught you. And this you don't find usually in fancy restaurants. You would find it on simple tables where, you know, an elderly woman would come and say, you know, today it came out really good. And then you know that you're in good hands. I'm sure it's my turn to say thank you, but I'll let your groupie do it for us. <laughs> thank you very much, Gil Chavav. Thank you, guys. And uh, the check is in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Jerusalem Post podcast travel edition. 
find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MarkDavidPod or mail us at markdavidpod at gmail.com. I'm delighted that our next guest represents one of my, if not my favorite city in all of Israel, and she is Pascal Oged Poplowski. Tell us a little bit about who you are. First of all, I am very pleased to be here with you. I was born in France, as the name and the accent uh, tell, and I first came to a kibbutz in the north of the country, in the north of uh, Israel. Uh, I've been a chief guide working in Akko for more than 25 years now, uh, which uh, makes me a privileged uh, witness to the excavations and the restoration of the historic sites uh, of Old Acre. You've already called it Akko and you've called it Acre. What on earth do we call this town on the north coast up above Haifa and just south of Nahariya? Well, most of the English-speaking uh, tourists call it Acre. In Hebrew, we said Akko, of course. In Arabic, Aka. If you want the French version, Saint-Jean-d'Acre. So, you yeah. know, many Brilliant. names for <laughs> for the same city. And a nice legend, if you uh, want to hear about it. They said that in the ancient times, even b- before Noah, people on the earth were really behaving badly and God really uh, wanted to punish them. So he had a a flood and it was raining, raining, and the sea level was getting up, covering the earth. At one time, uh, God uh, looked down and saw that in our region, people were not so bad. So he decided to save them and decided to stop the water. How did he do? He said, Adko, till here. And Adko, with the time, became Akko. I'm not sure it's historical right, but it's a nice legend. I like it. So put simply, why should people go to Akko? So many reasons. First of all, Akko is a World Heritage Site by the UNESCO, which is a quite an important uh, international uh, recognition. And I think it's one of the rarest sites in the world to have been re- declared a World Heritage Site twice. First in 2001, thanks to the uh, Crusaders and uh, Turkish remains. And later on, uh, thanks to the very nice Baha'i gardens we have uh, in the city. So actually, it is really recommended to schedule at least one full day uh, to visit uh, Acre. You can wander around the, you know, through the underground crusader sites. You have a fortress, you have a tunnel, you have Turkish sites, you have a Turkish bathhouse, a hammam. Of course, one of the highlights of Acre would be its uh, colorful uh, uh, marketplace, you know. And then uh, you can find the authentic uh, street food. You have best hummus in the country, the hummus of uh, Acre, delicious falafel and many variation of shawarma. Uh, <laughs> well, you have all kind of sweet uh, delicacies also. And in the picturesque uh, Alliston of Old Arco, you can uh, discover all kind of art galleries and treat yourself with a nice souvenir from our city. Arco at its center has a great old city. Are there more modern landmarks that people can go and see? Most of the highlights of Acre would be in the in the old city, eh? not just historical sites. Uh, you, we have some uh, nice museums, like uh, an ethnographic museum into the the walls, the Turkish walls. Very nice museum. We have uh, a modern art museum. We have uh, ancient synagogues. And of course, Acre, you know, you have the seashore, which is a really uh, wonderful. 
so and all kind of cultural events like you can come to the night souls to the crusader fortress not just to see the old stones which are quite interesting though but uh, we have uh, very high vaulted halls and there Israeli famous Israeli singers coming for concerts one time a year I believe it's during the Sukkot holiday September exactly. October you have an amazing festival tell us a little bit about that yes it's, it's a fringe theater festival it takes place within the uh, night halls uh, each all uh, you know the halls are divided in different uh, parts and uh, there is a performance a theatrical performance in each hall we have uh, uh, groups from all over the world coming uh, to Acre in this occasion and uh, the truth is that many Israeli know Acre thanks to this festival. That's a good moment of the year, you know. People are on vacation many times on Sukkot to come to our city and enjoy the history, the atmosphere of Acre and the cultural uh, part of it with the, the theater festival. Pascal Ogen Poplowski, thank you so much for joining us and for bringing to light the beauty of Acre and Akko, two cities for the price of one. Exactly, and we are waiting for you with open arms in Acre. So please join us and come to discover our wonderful city. You're listening to the Jerusalem Post podcast travel edition. And now the latest news. Ben-Gurion airport managers believe passenger congestion will remain until November. In addition to many airlines not allowing online check-in, 45 check-in counters have been removed to make more space for PCR testing. The most popular destinations for Israelis this Passover were Greece, followed by Turkey, the UAE, Italy, the US, France and Georgia. Ramon Airport near Eilat welcomed its first international flight in two years. The Israeli Tourism Ministry is offering a 60 euro per passenger subsidy to help grow future traffic. From 19th of April, all major US carriers scrapped the mask rule after a US district judge said the CDC had overstepped its authority. Israeli hotel chain Fatal raised almost $350 million to go shopping for up to 30 new hotels to add to its current portfolio of some 220. After a Covid delay, the Azerbaijan Tourism Board opened its new office in Tel Aviv. Tourism attaché Jamila Talibzadeh proclaimed, From now on, we have a part of Azerbaijan in Tel Aviv. Feel free to come around. One of the main reasons you would go on a, a Jewish trip advisor is to find a good hotel. And World Jewish Travel tries to exemplify not the chain hotels, but the boutique hotels. And if you're thinking Tel Aviv and you're thinking boutique hotels, we probably have the guest for you. Would you like to introduce yourself? Absolutely. First of all, thank you for inviting me. My name is Yaron Lieberman. I'm the general manager of the Norman Tel Aviv. We'll just celebrate uh, my 10-year anniversary. Happy anniversary. Very exciting. I've been uh, in the industry for almost 25 years. I study hotel management in hotels in Switzerland. Uh, spent uh, 12 years in America, North America, New York and Miami, working for the, one of the finest hotels in the industry. Some of them are the Breakers in Palm Beach, the Turnberry Isle, the Essex South, the World of Astoria in New York, fine hotels. After 12 years, decided to move to Israel. I had the pleasure to work at the Sheraton Tel Aviv, at the Inbal Hotel in Jerusalem. And uh, now I'm uh, at the Norman, uh, 10 years. So the big question is, who was Norman? 
Norman is uh, the father of the owner, the current owner, Mr. Lurie, Jonathan Lurie. Norman was a great Zionist who lived in uh, South Africa. In the early 50s, he decided to come to Israel and to open a hotel called the Dolphin House in Shavet Zion, up in the north, which was a very, very luxury hotel back in those days. Sophia Loren uh, stayed there, Paul Newman, they filmed the Oxodus film. So a very well-known hotel and a true luxury hotel during those days. So that's Norman. And Jonathan uh, Lurie, a great visionary, as his dad, uh, decided to open the hotel 10 years ago. He bought two buildings in Rothschild Boulevard. At the time, they weren't that exciting, that whole area. As I said, the visionary uh, saw that there are no uh, enough luxury properties, true luxury hotel in Israel, and he decided to uh, open the Norman. It's in one of these beautiful streets. I think there's quite a bit of Bauhaus uh, uh, architecture Nefmani around. Street. Absolutely. It, it's hard to find unless you know where you're going, but once you're there, it is a superb building. Tell us a little bit about its history and the themes within. Absolutely, and you're absolutely right. It became an iconic hotel in Israel. We always describe the Norman have the five pillars, uh, which is the architectural, the very uh, one building is a Bauhaus, the other building, the main building is Art Deco, the interior design, which is about attention to detail, the art, all the art in the hotel is originally Israeli artists. It's also something very nice that Jonathan decided to support and promote the Israeli uh, artist community, the culinary offering that we have, and the most important, which is the service, the intangible, the thing that you cannot go and buy you need to find the right people, train them. That's what the Norman is, is all about. That's what makes it so different, so special. Tel Aviv has seen an enormous growth of boutique hotels. Every, every corner from Rothschild down to the beach, there is a hotel which says boutique hotel. What makes the Norman stand out as the number one boutique hotel, as recently voted, I believe? Yes, yes, you're absolutely right. We're very privileged. And it's trained not only in Tel Aviv or in Israel, it's worldwide which differentiate what make the Norman so different, so unique. It's standalone between the wonderful big hotels that on the beach that have all the facilities, the swimming pool, room service, a lot of food and beverage offering, to the small hotels, the boutique hotels that have wonderful rooms with great design but cannot offer the facilities. And the Norman have both have the facilities and the attention to detail and the service. We are a 50-room hotel, and a 50-room hotel, we can provide much more attention to service, be more detailed to our service. I'm personal, as the general manager, I would greet uh, every guest uh, during their check-in uh, because I can do it in a 50-room hotel. You go to 200, 300 hotel, it's a bit difficult. So I have the privilege to do that, and that's what makes the Norman so different. Again, it's attention to detail and it's the level of service that we provide to our guests. You mentioned a couple of times the cuisine of the Norman Hotel. It's also world-renowned. Can you tell us more about the cuisine offering? We have actually a several offering, culinary offering. On the ground floor we have Elena, which Elena actually was a Norman wife. She passed away a few years ago when we decided to recall the restaurant under her name. Uh, and the restaurant is uh, Mediterranean on the Italian side. So the, our chef, two young chefs, uh, Omer and Daniel, who grew up here in Israel, up in the north, uh, brought the Israeli cuisine with touches from uh, south of Italy. We have the library bar, 
which is a wonderful uh, lounge that open all day long that offer also dishes from Elena menu. And on the rooftop, we have our Japanese tapas restaurant, Dining, which at the moment is closed, but we're planning to reopen it close to the summer around June, July. Outside of food, you mentioned facilities. What else are guests going to find in the hotel? It's from unbelievable infinity rooftop pool, a heated pool that we're just opening as we speak, a wellness center that includes a treatment room, a gym, as I mentioned, dining, Japanese restaurant, room service, 24-hour, the lounge, a Lena restaurant that open all day long. These are the facilities, the parking underneath, beautiful garden, outdoor areas. It's a gorgeous hotel. One of the things that Yaron mentioned was that he is there to greet all guests personally at check-in. And what I have to say, we're surrounded now by several thousand people. You are the most dapper of all with the kerchief in the pocket, the beautiful pinstripe suit. So I can promise you that when you get to the Norman Hotel and meet the general manager, Yaron Lieberman, you're in for a treat. Thank you so much indeed for your time. Thank you so much, gentlemen, for inviting me. It's a great pleasure. Hi, this is David Harris from the Jerusalem Post podcast, Travel Edition. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MarkDavidPod, or mail us at MarkDavidPod at gmail.com. We're here at the IMTM, the biggest travel mart in Israel with guests from around the world. We are working with our sponsors, WJT, World Jewish Travel, and we are pleased to introduce our next guest, who is Arthur Kohl. Tell us a little bit about who you are and your background. Good morning. I am a a retired professional uh, diplomat. I served the country as a diplomat for close to 35 years. My last overseas post was ambassador to Belgrade. And in Israel was Deputy Director General, actually Head of uh, Public Diplomacy, as it is called now. Took early retirement and fulfilled my dream of many years and became a tour guide. Uh, I always wanted to do it, but my uh, career as a diplomat didn't uh, allow me. I didn't have the luxury of having the time to complete these uh, very interesting studies. I love the country, I love the people, I love the culture. And this is something that brings everything together, being a tour guide, and that is what I'm doing now. So you had a career as a diplomat, and then you became a tour guide. How do you make that journey? Because they're two very different fields. Very different fields, even though there is one thing in common, and that is representing or presenting the country at its best, whether as a diplomat or a tour guide to tourists who come to the country or Israelis who are traveling around. Uh, So there is something uh, in common, but the journey is not a natural one. I studied geography uh, before joining the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and I I had many friends who became tour guides and were excited uh, and enthusiastic about uh, what they are doing. I wanted to do it as well, and luckily after I retired, I, I was able to do it. COVID crisis, of course, stopped travel and especially tourism from abroad for a long period of time. But I hope that now it's going to come back and this is something that I'm looking forward to as a mission to present the country at its best. Where do you do your tour guiding and who do you like to tour guide for? I'd like to guide both Israelis and and foreigners who come to Israel. 
it is a very different tour when you take Israelis or uh, tourists from overseas. But I'd like to take them to Jerusalem, to Tel Aviv, the, all the new, the historic and the vibrant city of Tel Aviv. There is something which uh, links the two together, and that is the history, religion, culture, archaeology of, of Jerusalem and the spirituality that engulfs anyone who comes to Jerusalem and the very different uh, city of modern Israel, of Tel Aviv, the new city that became not only a hub in Israel but uh, international hub. In good times when we're away from Covid and so on, we get so many Christian visitors coming to Israel. Where do you take them and to what extent do you take them to Jewish or Muslim sites or do you just take them to the Christian sites? Naturally, Christian groups want to, that is their main objective of coming to Israel, to go in the footpath of Jesus, of uh, all the events in the New Testament and the Old Testament. But I think it would be right to present Christian pilgrims not only to the sites which are connected to the faith, but also to the Israeli society. I think it, it would be a miss if they don't meet the people, if they don't meet modern Israel as well. So it has to be, in my view, a combination, at least a taste of what Israel is all about today, of what makes Israel ticking. Because Israel is such a small country, it is no problem to do both. If you had to pick one site that was a favorite, where would it be? Well, my favorite would be Enkerem in Jerusalem. I live there, I love Enkerem. And uh, it is so significant to Christianity. And for many, many years, pilgrims in previous centuries, uh, when they came uh, you know, by foot and by horse and by camel uh, on pilgrimage to the Holy Land, there was something which was called the Pilgrim's Triangle, which was Jerusalem, Bethlehem, and then Kerem, the birthplace uh, of, of John the Baptist, uh, the very significant the uh, story of John the Baptist is manifested uh, both in the geography, in the, the architecture and in the very spirit of Enkerem. I, I, I love walking around Enkerem and seeing the many, many groups in normal times uh, of pilgrims walking up the uh, Church of Visitation uh, singing the Magnificat. Mark and I spend a lot of time together, so do our sons, and both of them spent the last year living in Ain Kerem in one of the programs. They're probably making lots of noise and keeping you awake, and both <laughs> of them fell in love with the village where you live. Arthur Cole, thank you so much indeed for your time. Thank you for inviting me, and all the best. You're listening to the Jerusalem Post podcast, Travel Edition. We're at IMTM, as you've already heard, so that explains any noise that you can hear in the background. There's uh, one of the countries right now is wandering around with drums, trying to bring people to their particular stand. If you've been to Israel in the last year and you visited Tel Aviv, there's a very good chance you will have come across a new old museum. And it's called Anu, the Museum of the Jewish People. Its CEO is Dan Tadmor, and he's with us now. So first of all, Dan, tell us who you are, a little bit about yourself. I am 58, married to Dana, three kids, 31, 29, and 15. And before coming to Anu, which used to be uh, Bedat Futsot or the Diaspora Museum, I spent a career in media. I ran a television company called Telad, which produces television channels 
for the multi-channel industry here in Israel and throughout the world. Before that, I was running the magazine division for Yediot Achronot, which is Israel's biggest publisher. So I was in media, which is a pretty natural progression to what I do now because a museum is ultimately, at the end of the day, another form of media. It's taking information and making it hopefully engaging to visitors. When I was 16, I came on Israel tour and I went to Bet Hatfutzot. The museum has come a long way in those 10 years, he says, uh, maybe 30, 40 years since I was on Israel tour. Can you tell us why it's changed to Anu and what the new museum represents? The museum first opened in 1978. And if you came and visited it in 78 or 80 or 85, in the first decade, it was a wonderful museum. It was groundbreaking in many ways. It was, for some people, transformational. It was just an excellent, forward-thinking museum. Museums age. And what was wonderful in 78 was decent in 88. It was less than decent in 98. And that was a quarter century ago. So for many years, it had become apparent that this museum, whose message is very, very important, needed a complete overhaul. It ended up being a 14-year journey and a $100 million campaign and a complete rebirth of this museum. So within the same building that's situated on the Tel Aviv University campus is a brand new museum. Very little survived from the old museum to the new. We may have time to mention what did survive. We took out 30 tons of a museum that was falling apart. And we've actually created a brand new 72,000 square foot museum. It's the biggest museum of its kind in the world. And there's reason for that. There are countless Jewish museums in the world, literally hundreds. And they're divided into two main categories. You've probably visited a lot of them. They either tell the story of Jews of a certain area. So you go to the Jewish Museum in Vienna and you get the story of Austrian Jews or a little bit of Central European Jews. You go to the Jewish Museum in Philadelphia and you hear the story of North American Jews. So that's one category. The other category is Holocaust museums or tolerance museums. Our museum attempts to tell the story in its entirety. So geographically, historically, and thematically, we attempt to tell the whole story. That would explain why it requires so much space, why it required 14 years of work, and why it's such a gargantuan endeavor. So to tell that story and to break it down in, into smaller pieces, the museum is, is split into a number of wings. That's right. Can you summarize the themes of each of the wings? It's four wings over three floors. And in fact, since it's such a huge museum, most people don't cover it all in one visit. People come again and again, and one way of doing it is to do one wing at a time. And so one wing is all about Jewish identity and culture in the modern era. It begins with the 20th century, and it shows you Jews in theater and dance and TV and cinema and art and literature. It shows you personal Jewish identity. It shows you families, and it shows you collective Jewish identity, denominations, and Jewish folklore. So that is basically a wing that's dedicated to, the, to celebrating Jewish identity in our own time. Hopefully, after that, you're curious as to how we got here. And so a full wing on the second floor is dedicated to history beginning with Abraham and up till the establishment of the State of Israel and beyond. Then there's a floor that's dedicated to the foundations of Jewish life. The Bible and its influence on world culture, the covenant, Shabbat, the Jewish yearly cycle, the Jewish life cycle. I mentioned things that have survived from the uh, old Betat Futzot, 
everyone who ever visited this museum remembers that we have a wonderful, exquisite collection of synagogue models. Those not only have survived, but we've put them on a pedestal in their own 7,000 square foot gallery. We've added more models. We've added more synagogues through interactive and through media. And now it's just a huge gallery that celebrates the way the Jewish people have congregated through the ages up to today's modern forms of congregation. Doing Kabbalat Shabbat on the beach in Tel Aviv or at a park in Brooklyn is also a way of being Jewish together. And that's depicted in the synagogue hall as well. And there's a changing exhibition about Jewish humor. It's going to be up for a while. And there's a kids gallery called Heroes, about 150 Jewish men and women who've made significant contributions to humankind, to the Jewish people, intended for families and kids aged 6 to 12. So now it's a very big museum in which you can actually come and visit again and again and again. What's your favorite part of the museum? I like the old stuff. <laughs> Me too. I like the synagogues and I like the 11 exquisite dioramas that we retained and in fact refurbished. Dioramas are a very old museum technique depicting three-dimensional scenes and there are 11 of those on the historical floor and they're just magnificent. I'm an old soul, I'm an old man, I'm 58, but I'm an old soul as well. I like objects, but there are 25 wonderful state-of-the-art interactive stations in the museum. It is very, very cutting edge. And there are 54 specially produced films in the exhibition. When I say specially produced, I don't mean downloaded from YouTube. I mean produced from scratch. We had the entire Israeli production industry working, in fact, during COVID, to finish producing these films. So there's a lot of media going on, a lot of interactive going on, and hundreds upon hundreds of objects. You probably wouldn't remember this, but in the old Bedat Futsot, there were no original objects. If you saw anything, it was a replica. It was plaster, it was paper mache, it was, it was a replica. Now there are hundreds upon hundreds of original objects that we've selected specially because they help us tell the story. We don't do what other museums do, which is collect stuff in storage. I don't know if you know this, but usually museums, 95% of what they own is downstairs in storage. We don't do that. We only take stuff, acquire or take things on loan that we can exhibit. If it doesn't help us tell the story, we're not going to take it. So those are the hundreds of objects in the museum. How can people find out more? Well, they can go on our website, Anu Museum, just Google it. And there's all the information about the museum and also about the other things that we do because we're more than a museum. We're also a place of education, both here in Israel and throughout the Jewish world. Tens of thousands of Jewish kids all over the world are engaged in our educational programs, digital initiatives. We're also a place for events, hundreds of events a year, cultural events of all kinds. By the way, we also do private events. So people hearing this, bringing in a group or whatever, very happy to talk to you and actually tailor a special event or special visit to the museum around your group's needs. Dan Tadmor, CEO of ANU, Museum of the Jewish People. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I am absolutely exhausted. Wow, what a day. We've been... Uh, not only doing the interviews that you've been hearing over the last uh, half an hour or so, but also wandering around the IMTM. People from across the world, I think it's very important at this point that we just mention one or two countries with stalls here that, that are very special because of the broader significance of those countries being in Israel. We've met with Morocco. We've met with Bahrain. We've met with people from Dubai. We've met with people from Abu Dhabi. 
you can really see the change in Israel. We've met lovely people again from Turkish Airlines and the better relations that Israel is having there now. It's a changed fare, I would say, from what would have been here three years ago. One of the things that I said to some of the people that Mark just mentioned is taking off our journalistic hat, our microphone hat, and just talking to them as Israelis, even though we're both originally from Britain, but as Israelis living here, just to say to them how much we appreciate not just the tourism relationship, but the fact that people from Morocco or Bahrain are sitting in Tel Aviv, having a conversation with us, going for a bite to eat in an Israeli restaurant, and now Israelis are doing the same in the other direction. is incredible. And to think, because we're here talking with World Jewish Travel, what are we doing in 12 months' time? What Jewish stories are we going to be telling from places like Morocco and Bahrain and Dubai about how these are the go-to Jewish destinations? Absolutely. At this point, we should do our round of thank yous. Thank you to Jack Gottlieb, the CEO of World Jewish Travel and our sponsor for bringing us here today. We'd like to say thank you to all of the guests that you've heard from today. Gil Chovav, Yaron Lieberman, Dan Tadmore, Arthur Cole, and Mark did that on purpose because we don't have Pascal's full name in front of us, but it's something like Pascal Ogum Popolavsky. Popolavsky. Pascal Ogen Pascal from Arco. Sorry, Pascal. Don't hurt us. Folks, if you've enjoyed this pod as much as we have, please, please, please subscribe, share, tell all your friends about it, write a positive review. It really helps us get noticed and more attention on the big web if you can do that. And we have plenty of other podcasts from plenty of other destinations to listen to as well. And join us in two weeks' time when we continue our journey through Dubai. Can't wait. Goodbye. Goodbye from IMTM. The Jerusalem Post podcast Travel Edition is sponsored by worldjewishtravel.org, the number one platform for planning your Jewish cultural trips.